the middle book of the Lord of the Rings is called The Two Towers. I realize most of us maybe have seen the movies that were made about 20 years ago. Great movies. But of course, not as good as the books. And at a certain point, the, the, the differences between book and movie are really pronounced. So at the end of the second book is where the massive cliffhanger happens that the movies kind of get wrong. What happens at the end of the second book, the hobbit Frodo is entering into Mordor to destroy the ring of power. That's the great mission. And the creature Gollum is his guide. But Gollum's got a trick up his sleeve. He, le he leads them into the lair of this massive, terrifying spider in hopes that the spider will kill Frodo and then Gollum can come in and reclaim the ring for himself. And just according to plan, the spider attacks Frodo, stabs him, fills him with venom, and leaves him for dead. And that's how the second book ends, with Frodo seemingly dead and his mission to destroy the ring a failure. And now, of course, at the time that the books were written, the fans of the books were beside themselves. Surely Frodo, the hero, can't be dead. That's not how his, his story ends. The journey can't end right there when he's so close to achieving his purpose, right? Anytime we're caught up in a good story where the hero seems to die or someone that we love dies, it, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't sit well with us. Something's amiss, right? And of course, in the case of the, ring, uh, the Lord of the Rings, you had to wait for the third book to, to find out what the resolution was. But y'all, as we've, as we've walked through the Gospel of John, we've seen Jesus do amazing things. He's turned water into wine. He's fed a multitude of people from a single meal. He's healed blindness and paralysis and all manner of sickness. We've seen him forgive sin. All sorts of awesome things Jesus has done. But up to this point, we haven't really seen Jesus encounter death, at least not directly. And if there's some way for us to imagine, if you had never read this book at all, if you were reading the Gospel of John for the first time with no spoilers, you didn't know what was going to happen. Hard to imagine. But in that case, we might be reading through, hey, we're getting to chapter 11 here. Jesus is clearly amazing. But there's one feat that's even too great for him, surely. It's got to be the issue of death, because death is the one thing you can't cheat. Death is the one thing that's ultimate and final. Death gets the last word. You can heal the sick, and that's amazing. But nobody can raise the dead. That's too far. Even Jesus surely has his limits. But that's what makes John 11 one of the most important chapters really in the whole Bible. Because y'all hear, Jesus deals with death in the most serious way. He doesn't speak about death in generalities and false comforts, but he deals with it head on, face to face, eye to eye. And on this most important issue, something that affects 100% of all people, we need resolution, we need answers, we need to know that God can speak into the issue of death and overcome it. And that's what John 11 will show us. Here in this chapter, we see not only Jesus' power as it pertains to the issue of death, we also get to see his love for people, for the dying and the grieving. We see Jesus' glory, yes, but we also get to see his heart. We get to see in three dimensions here the beauty and the awesomeness of our Savior. 
Now, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, we are going to break this story into two pieces. It's really too big and too wonderful to fit into one sermon. So we're going to leave on a little cliffhanger ourselves today here in John 11. I just want to let you know before we get into it. Look with me at verse 1 of this awesome chapter. John begins the story. He says, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Y'all, when, so often when Jesus encounters a person in the Bible, in the Gospels, we're not given that person's name. You've probably noticed this. And so we only know them as the man born blind, the woman at the well, uh, the man who was lame for 38 years, things like that. This is how we know a lot of these people because the Gospels don't give us their names. But right here, right off the bat, we, we have a story that is deeply personal. This is not just somebody who's sick. This is Lazarus who is sick. The brother of Mary and Martha and clearly a close personal friend of Jesus. So much so that when Lazarus falls ill and is at death's door, his sisters send this message to Jesus. He whom you love is sick. They don't even name him. Surely Jesus knows exactly who they're talking about. Now, he whom you love is sick. We might be prone to kind of interject here and say, well, yeah, yeah, but Jesus loves everybody, right? Yes. But we need to open ourselves up to the fact that Jesus actually had friends. You know, sometimes in my mind, I, I think about Jesus kind of as some sort of hovering spirit of a man, unaffected by the realities of this world. He didn't get too close, you know. And that's such a strange and false perception. Jesus, as a human being had buddies, he had friends, he had people that he knew well and loved in unique ways. And here we have a man, Lazarus, who was not one of the twelve disciples, and yet was a close personal friend of Jesus, a man Jesus loved dearly. And so when Jesus hears the news, he responds with a great word of assurance. You see that? He says, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now that sentence really seems to settle it, right? Nothing to worry about here. Jesus is going to glorify God by healing his friend's illness. Now we've already seen back in John chapter 4, Jesus healed a person from a distance. The nobleman's son, Jesus said, your son lives, and though he was yet miles away, the miracle was achieved. Jesus Christ is that powerful. He doesn't even have to be there in person, right? And so if Jesus offers this word of assurance, he has the power to heal Lazarus right from where he is, y'all, we're going to be done well before lunch. But then Jesus throws this major curveball into the story, as he often does. Jesus throws us a curveball. Look at verse 5. It says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so... When he heard that Lazarus was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. 
Now hold on. Jesus loves Lazarus and his family. Jesus has the power to heal his friend on the spot, or at the very least, to pack up and rush down to the town of Bethany to join his friend at his bedside. But he doesn't. He doesn't. In fact, he remains where he is two additional days and seemingly does nothing. Now, how in the world do we explain something like that? You know, I'm going to use a phrase. I'm sure I didn't come up with this, but we're going to see this on multiple points today. The phrase, peculiar providence. The word providence means that God is not just all-powerful. He's not just sovereign. He's purposeful in all that he does. God is not just big and strong and, and in control, but somewhere far away, but God is near, and he's purposeful. Everything in the world is under the hand of God, and therefore everything will ultimately achieve God's purposes for our good and his glory. That's what providence means. It means that God will see to his good will for all things and all people. Now, we're right, though, to call it a peculiar providence, a strange providence, because, y'all, within the scope of God's purposes are a lot of bad things, including what we see here in the sickness and death of Lazarus. Bad things happen within the scope of God's purposes. And so this is one of the oldest and most common objections to God. It's one that I'm sure you've heard, and maybe one you've wondered on your own in your own heart. If God is both all-powerful and all-loving, all-good, how could anything bad ever happen? If God has the power to do whatever he wants and he's good, bad things shouldn't happen to anybody, right? How could we believe in a loving God when the world he's made is so full of darkness and death? Is that a fair question? It's a massive question. And I say this often, I'll say it again, it's too big of a question for one sermon. I'm so happy to talk with you about this question, to walk through it with you. Come find me after the service. We'll have coffee, we'll, have, we'll talk on the phone, whatever it is, I'd be so delighted to talk with you through this. But y'all, just for today, in the context of John 11, we see the peculiar providence of Jesus. Jesus had no problem with such a big question. Look at, look at this again, beginning in verse 4. Jesus says, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so, therefore, when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now y'all, right there, this makes no sense unless Jesus actually knows what he's doing. The end of this is not death, but God's glory. How how could anybody know that unless Jesus has a line to the Father, unless Jesus is the Son of God? How could he know how this is going to end? He knows what he's doing. And this is even more, more peculiar. John says, because Jesus loves this family, he stays where he is. He doesn't come to their aid. Because he loved them. (laughs) Y'all, at this stage, it's okay if the puzzle pieces don't really fit for us. They're not meant to fit yet. But here's what we know, and here's what John assures us. 
Jesus' decision to stay where he is is not in conflict with his love for Lazarus. And for you and me, no matter how life throws us curveballs, no matter how many bad things domino in our lives, sometimes it feels that way, there's never a contradiction between our circumstances and the love of God. He knows what he's doing. And even though Lazarus' sickness, which is a bad thing, it truly is bad, that sickness is very real and will lead to death, it doesn't contradict God's goodness and God's glory. Jesus says so. And again, we'll see how it unfolds, y'all. There's nothing unloving or arbitrary about what Jesus is doing here. He's in control. He knows what he's doing. And we see that beginning in verse 7. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. That's where Bethany is. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going to go there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of Lazarus' death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe but let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also, so that we may die with him. Quick little note, you know, Thomas gets a bad rap because he doubted the resurrection, but right here he's the only one courageous enough to say, well, let's go. If we get stoned and die, we die. But y'all, it's clear right here that Jesus and his disciples have got two very different concerns The disciples are worried about what? Their own skin and the life of Jesus. They're worried about the threat of the Jewish leaders doing them harm because in their minds, they just escaped death very narrowly back in chapter 10. These men held up stones to kill the Messiah. And so why go right back into the teeth of the danger zone here? But again, y'all, Jesus appeals to the peculiar providence of God. Do you see what he says? As long as we walk in the day, we never stumble. The day is a a reference to the earthly ministry of Jesus, that three-year period when he walked the earth. Y'all, what Jesus is basically saying here, as long as I'm with you, you've got nothing to worry about. Jesus was not going to suffer and die until the appointed time given from the Father, until the cross. And until that point, Jesus and his disciples were essentially invincible. These men can utter all the threats they want. They can pick up all the stones they want. But until the appointed time comes, nothing can happen to us. That's confidence right there. That's providence. God is seeing to it that they can't be touched until the time comes for Jesus to suffer on our behalf. So Jesus' concern is not his own safety. His concern, verse 14, you see it? 
He said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And y'all, again, peculiar providence. Not only does Jesus decide not to go see Lazarus in his deep time of need, but now he says, I'm glad for your sakes, disciples, that I was not there so that you may believe. Now, what do the disciples have to do with this story? Isn't this just about Jesus and Lazarus and Mary and Martha? Certainly the disciples are not sick or dying or have any needs in the moment. But y'all, this is, y'all, you see what Jesus is saying. If he had been there to heal Lazarus from his sickness, to prevent his death, God's will, God's glory in this circumstance would not have been accomplished. God's purposes for this moment, for Lazarus and his family and the disciples and us by extension, God's purpose would have been thwarted if Jesus had gone to his side and healed him right away. No, there's something about the glory of God that these disciples have not yet seen and that this circumstance will now provide. Jesus waited on purpose, and I'm glad I wasn't there for your sakes because there's something about your faith here that I have in mind to produce, so that you may believe. That's his concern. So let's go. Let's go. And now we see in verse 17, they arrive on the outskirts of Bethany. When Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Martha comes to Jesus. And, you know, sometimes we we might take what she says as a rebuke. She's mad, maybe. But y'all, Martha was a woman of great faith, and certainly she was racked with grief. And so her words really shouldn't come across as surprising to us. We, we shouldn't necessarily see this as, as anger. She simply says, Lord, if you had been here, I know you would have healed him. I know my brother would still be alive. And even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Now, y'all, it's, it's not clear here that she's actually asking for a resurrection. She's simply declaring faith in Jesus. The fact that Jesus didn't come on time, the fact that Lazarus died is not a deterrent to her own faith. She still trusts in this man. Beyond the present circumstances, she believes in Christ. And so, verse 23, Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again, in the resurrection on the last day. And y'all, this, is, this was a very common belief among most of the Jews that there was a future resurrection of the just that would come on the last day. On the final day, at the end of time, God would raise up all the righteous people to life again, life with God forever in the presence of the Lord. And certainly Martha believed that, that for Lazarus there would be a resurrection on the last day. But that's not what Jesus meant, is it? 
Now look at verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. So backtrack a little bit with me. When when Jesus says, your brother will rise again, Martha perhaps is taking that as a very kind word of spiritual comfort, but nothing more. Just like we might do at a funeral, if you're ever at a funeral and you might be tempted to say something like, well, he's in a better place. He's not feeling any pain anymore. Uh, We'll see him again one day, things like that, which of course is all true. Those are words of comfort that we offer, right? But y'all, Jesus right here is not saying he's in a better place, or one day he will be. Now, there's no cliche here. Jesus is declaring something about himself, not just Lazarus. How is it that Lazarus is certain to rise again? Because, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Y'all, Jesus can promise to raise people from the dead. That audacious promise. He alone can make that promise because he is the resurrection. Jesus can offer eternal life to all who believe in him because he has life in himself, divine life in himself, John 5 says. Therefore, he can give life to whomever he wishes. And y'all, this is a deep statement Jesus is making here that as a, as a pastor and preacher, I want to try to fully explain and I just run up against a wall, honestly. I'm not sure that we can fully get to the bottom in our own minds of what's all entailed when Jesus says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. But it's deeper, it's more wonderful than we can possibly comprehend. But y'all, I think there's a, when I say I run up against a wall, trying to understand it, trying to explain it, one of the reasons we run up against a wall when we think of Jesus and when we think of heaven and we think of eternal things is because we have a very low concept, a very low view of eternal things. And you'll know what I mean as I say this. A lot of people, including maybe some of us, including me, when we think of heaven, we think of heaven like this. The afterlife goes like this. If I'm a good person, then when I die, God will reward me with a place in heaven where I will get to spend eternity in perpetual personal happiness. That's how we typically think of heaven. I'll go there one day when I die, And it will be some very ethereal experience, but it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be happy, and I'll get to experience all the wonderful things I always wanted. But y'all, that's not what Jesus is saying right here as it relates to himself and our relationship to him. I mean, look, look again at the whole statement. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. What's the emphasis on? It's not on our personal experience one day in the future. That's certainly included, but that's not the emphasis. 
the emphasis is on capital M, lowercase e, me, Jesus. Believe in me. Believe in me. Because Jesus is the embodiment of divine life. That means you and I receive life from him as a gift from him. That's what Jesus said about his sheep in John 10. I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. Life is found in Jesus. It's not something you and I can earn or deserve or receive one day as a reward. Jesus alone gives life. Life is found in him. And the way he gives us this life is by giving us himself. We believe in him. We entrust ourselves to him. The scripture says to be a Christian means we are in Christ. We don't merely follow behind him. We're not merely associated with him. We are in Christ. That's the level of relationship we've been given. And therefore, there is no life. There is no resurrection apart from faith in the person of Jesus. And so, y'all, I, I make this, it's a very brief point, a huge point, but it's, but it's very brief. If our concept of eternal life is lower than this, that is to say that one day God will give me a place somewhere out there where, where I can have happiness and all the riches and the comforts I've always dreamed of. And we'll play baseball with lightning bolts. And we'll, you know, we'll do all sorts of, you know, I can eat whatever I want without concern for calories, right? All this, all this stuff that maybe you and I have envisioned as kids or maybe even now even as adults. If that's our idea of what eternal life is, then we have misunderstood the scripture and we are putting much too low an emphasis on what makes heaven, heaven. What makes heaven, heaven is not that I finally get everything I want and I get to be the center of God's affections. No, what makes it heaven is that it is the fullness of God forever. That's what heaven is. That's what makes it great. That we get to spend eternity immersed in the glory and the power and the goodness and the mercy and the grandeur and the beauty and the love and the worship of Jesus. That's why He stands at the center of all things in heaven. He is the light that illumines all things in heaven. He is everything. And y'all, if Jesus somehow wasn't there, it wouldn't be heaven at all. I don't care how great of an experience it is. I don't care if we got everything we ever wanted. If Jesus wasn't there, it would be hell. It's only Him that makes life, life. It's only Him that we can, in Him that we can receive the glorious promises that He offers here because He is the source of everything good. He's the source of life itself. And so when Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life, do you believe this? He's asking us that question too. Do you believe this? See, it's clear that the focus of the conversation is not Lazarus so much anymore. It's on Jesus. Do you believe that I am who I say I am? And precious Martha, gives one of the clearest, most beautiful expressions of faith we ever see in the Bible. Y'all, just like Thomas, you know, Martha gets a bad rap too because of that place in Luke where she's so busy serving and she's all agitated at her sister Mary because Mary's not doing anything. Uh, Martha, you know, she gets a bad rap. But look, look at what she says. I 
Believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Yes, Lord, whatever you say, because I believe in you. Now, what happens next? We're going to have to wait till next week to find out. Don't read ahead. I don't want you to know. All right. You pro- if, even if you didn't know, you can probably guess what, what's about to happen. But y'all hear it right today. Here's where the anchor is laid down. Here's where the foundation is set. Before Jesus does what he plans to do, he declares who he already is. Before he does what he does, he declares who he is. I am the resurrection and the life. Therefore, everyone who believes in him has life in his name. Life greater, more wonderful, more eternally beautiful than we could ever imagine. We live even if we die, Jesus says. And in the deepest and truest sense, we never die. Death as we know it no longer has a hold or a power over us because of Christ. And y'all, once again, as we close, we take in the peculiar providence of God. How is it that Jesus can make such an, an audacious promise in the midst of a world where death rules? Where death gets the last word. Death is the end. How can Jesus step in and say otherwise? Only if he himself suffers death in our place. Only if Jesus himself enters in to the cruelty of death for us. And then, by God's great power, rises again to conquer it. Only if Jesus goes to the cross and is buried in the tomb and then overcomes the grave. Only that kind of person can make a promise like this and actually see it through. And therefore, we should have full confidence that he'll do the same for us. And y'all, that's how we close. Let's close from Romans chapter 8 as the Apostle Paul declares this promise to us. Paul says, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Because Jesus died and was raised, everyone who believes in Him will never die. We will be raised like Him forever and ever to spend eternity in His glorious presence. What a promise. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would very graciously correct us this morning. If we have held to to far too low a view of life and resurrection and eternal things, Father, certainly we can say with confidence that heaven will be delightful to us, that we will experience pleasures forever. But not in and of ourselves. And certainly not because of any good we've done. But I pray, Father, that we would see this morning that the future that awaits us is glorious and eternally Perfect. 
because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. Because he is Lord of all. Because he is the lamb who was slain and the one who is now risen and who reigns forever. He is the lamp that will illumine heaven. And the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells, everything will orbit around him as he sits on his throne. Father, if that's all true, then Lord, would you, would you bring us to this moment right now a deep and joyful and awesome sense of wonder and gratitude and worship and devotion. That Jesus is that great, that our future is that secure in Him, and that He right now, right now, abides in us works in us, comforts us, leads us, gives us life. Father, by faith in him, all these wonderful truths are ours. Our cup overflows with your grace. And Father, I pray this this morning that whether here in this room or even online, if there's anyone who might today echo this great confession of Martha's and come for the first time to a faith in Jesus Christ to say, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one who comes into the world, that you have suffered on the cross, Jesus, and you were raised again in victory. And by that confession of faith, Lord, I pray for salvation this morning to bring new life to a soul as they receive you. Father, we are so blessed. I pray that we will, that we will drink deeply of this living water that Jesus Christ so abundantly gives us. And that we will worship him with full hearts in light of how much he's loved us. Thank you that there is resurrection life given to us by a Savior who loves us. And it's in his incredible, beautiful name we thank you. Amen.